What or who gives you a true sense of hope? What or who gives you a real sense of hope? Chuck Swindoll has observed that we can live without a lot of things, but we can't live five minutes without hope. What or who is giving you hope? Hope is so essential. It is like bread to someone who is super hungry. It is like waiting for the surgeon's report when you are in the waiting area and a close friend or a loved one is having surgery and you're just on pins and needles waiting for that surgeon to come out and sit down and give you the report. And when that report is good news, everything's okay, we've taken care of it, there's that tremendous sense of hope. One of the aspects of being in an airport that I've always loved is when folks come off those planes and they leave the secure area and they step into that part of the airport where their friends or relatives are waiting for them. There's that sense of hope. They've been waiting. They've been looking forward to making that contact. And when they see each other, those faces light up with a big smile. There are hugs that are exchanged. Uh, there's that sense of hope. They've been waiting and hoping that they would see that person. And man, when they, you see that person, it just changes everything. Well, the Lord we love is the Lord of hope. He loves to give hope. He specializes in hope because the Lord is hope. He is a God of hope because He is hope. And just like walking off that plane, He is waiting for us to walk up to Him and to find in His love and His glory and His holiness and His power and all that He is the hope that deep down on the inside we are longing for. And on the days when we don't feel like we've got anything else in life to hope for and the days that we're not sure we've got anybody else we can find hope in, every day is consistent in that we have hope in Jesus. He is there to provide us the hope that we need. I mean, a series of messages called Favorite Verses, Eternal Truths. And we're going to look at a cause for hope that God gives us in a favorite verse. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3. Now, Jeremiah may be the last book that you and I would anticipate of finding hope in because Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And it was because Jeremiah's call was to bring a message initially of judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah. He had a very hard task. He was called of God when he was 20 years old. Now, Jeremiah, as a young boy, was born into a very small town, literally on a family farm. And he grew up in that small town, and he got around 20 years of age, and God said to him, I've got a way that I want to use your life, a very specific way that I want to use your life. You are going to be a prophet to the nations. And so Jeremiah relocates to the city of Jerusalem. Now on his way there, and as he begins to proclaim his message, life begins to become very difficult for Jeremiah because Jeremiah has a tough message that he has to deliver on God's behalf to his people. First of all, that message means that the folks that he grew up with rejected him. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jeremiah. 
They said, that's a crazy boy that grew up in our town who's bringing this tough message, and we don't want to listen to anything he has to say. Now, people love for you to talk about the love of God. Nobody enjoys talking about the judgment of God. And yet, Jeremiah's calling was to talk about the judgment of God and the disciplining hand of God on the nation of Judah. Then his own family thought he was a fanatic and he was crazy. To use a modern phrase, they would have said he was, if he would live today, that he was a Jesus freak. And so his family didn't want to have anything to do with him. And then the prophets of his day looked at him and they said, Jeremiah, you have got it all wrong. You're supposed to be bringing a message of peace and love and acceptance and that God is really cool with the nation of Judah. You're not supposed to be bringing a message of judgment. And so they rejected his message. They rejected him. So Jeremiah is catching it from everybody. In addition to the folks that he is working with don't want to listen to anything. But in spite of all the opposition, Jeremiah had a long ministry. Listen, it is never an issue of how many people like you and like the message that you bring. As long as you stay in it for Jesus, you're in there till the Lord says it's time for you to go home to glory. And Jeremiah was a prophet for approximately 50 years, even though his life was under tremendous amounts of pressure. The Lord kept him in there for 50 years. He served during the reigns of five successive kings of Judah. And his message covered multiple times when the nation of Judah was under rule of other nations. During the Assyrian rule, the Egyptian rule, and finally the Babylonian rule, Jeremiah's message continued and he continued to serve the Lord. Now, there are great passages in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah gives us prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus. And the 33rd chapter that we'll look at in just a moment is one of those. 71 times in the book of Jeremiah, he will use the term heart. And what he's trying to say is this. The Lord wants a personal relationship with you. The Lord wants a heart relationship with you. The Lord wants you to be close to Him. And so that's the reason He uses this word heart over and over again. Now, as I said, Jeremiah had a tough call. His predictions were not fulfilled immediately. So folks would look at him and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You sit up here and you say, God's going to do this and God's going to do that. And nothing happens. So you're just talking out your head, Jeremiah. He performed no miracles. You know, if you can do miraculous stuff and people can look at you, they say, that guy's really got credibility. Well, Jeremiah wasn't performing any miracles. So people thought that invalidated his message. But Jeremiah's hope was grounded in the person of the Lord God in the sovereignty of God. Now, the book of Jeremiah, if you read through it, is not a book that is written in what we would call historical succession. In other words, it doesn't just follow successively through from one decade to the next. So if you try to read Jeremiah that way, you're going to get real frustrated with it. It is rather more thematically organized, picking up certain themes and working through those themes. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3 the context of this chapter is that it is a message about the coming of the Messiah. Now, this is what Jeremiah has been saying up to 33. God's going to come to you, Judah, and he's going to judge you. 
And he's going to bring judgment upon you, and you're going to have to repent and turn to him. In fact, God is going to use the Babylonians, which had come on the scene as the world power of that day, to cause you as a nation to be cleansed and to turn back to me. That was not a message they wanted to hear. Because as Babylon was literally on the steps of the city of Jerusalem... They wanted to hear a message of God's going to step in here and blow Babylon away instead of Jeremiah saying, just go on ahead, put up the white flag and surrender to Babylon because God is using Babylon to join you. You can imagine how well received that was. It went over like a lead balloon. And so Jeremiah brings this message, but in the midst of this, he says, after you have repented, And you've turned back to God. And God has taken you through this time of judgment to cleanse you and bring you back to me. Bring you back to the Lord. Then this is what's going to happen. Verse 3. Call to me and I will answer you. And will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Now, please capture what he is saying here. He is saying to a nation of people who had turned their back on God, who had walked away from God, that God had had to judge and take them into exile. So many of the people have been taken to Babylon in exile. So he's taken them into exile. They have known the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the correction and discipline of God. They had sinned, screwed up, and blown their relationship with the Lord in about every way you possibly could, both as individuals and as a people. Now, God is saying through His prophet, call to me, and I'm going to answer you. And I'm going to show you things that you have not seen or experienced from me. You see, God is saying to a sinful, wayward people, when you repent, when you turn around, when you come back to me, I'm going to respond to you. I'm going to love you, and I've got a will for you. I've got a plan for you, and I've got a way that I want to use you. Folks, none of us is ever too far away from God. And some of you that are listening to me this morning, both here and through the internet and on radio, you have said, I have walked away from the Lord, I have messed up, I have screwed up, and God couldn't possibly have any way that He wants to use me. But the message of God's Word in Jeremiah 33, 3 is God is saying, I love you, and if you will repent, if you will come to me, I've got a plan for your life, I will use you, I will show you things that will blow your socks off of my love and my truth for you. Just come to me. Now let's go into this verse and what he says in these key words that he uses here. And the sermon outline is in your bulletin. I encourage you to follow along. He begins with a verb there. He says, I want you to come to me. He says, call out to me. Call to me and I'm going to answer you. The Hebrew word that's translated call there means to encounter someone. It speaks of a specific person. Asking for a specific response from a specific recipient. He is saying, I want you to call out to me in a specific way. God is saying, I am calling you. I am pleading with you. And the actual Hebrew word that's used here, the verb tense is a command. I am commanding you. This is how intense God is. I am commanding you. To encounter me. God is saying to his, fo- his people here. I'm like your friend. And I yearn to have a close deep friendship with you. I want you to encounter me God is saying. 
I want you to experience me. What he's saying here in this word, call out to me, is that I want this to be relationship driven, not need driven. I want you to come to me because you want a relationship with me and I am yearning to have a relationship with you. I don't want you to just come to me because you want your needs met. I want you to come to me because you want me. Now, folks, there is a difference between us wanting God to meet our needs and us wanting God. You see, it's easy for me to come in church and say, I want Jesus, I want you to make sure that I got enough money this week. And I want to make sure, Jesus, that you keep me in good health. And Jesus, I got this need and I got that need. And does God want us to bring our needs to Him? Yes, He does. But He wants something deeper than that. When was the last time we came to church? When was the last time we opened our Bibles and we said, Jesus, I'm not going to come to you with a bunch of needs. I just want you. I want to know you in a deeper way. I want to encounter you. I want to experience you, Lord. And whatever you do in response to that, I'm going to be satisfied with that. You see, if I'm need-driven instead of relationship-driven, I will go right past Jesus on the way to trying to get a need met. Well, Lord, I know you're in the area, and if you could take care of my needs, that's fine. But I go right past him, and I focus on the need. And what he's calling us to is to come to him, and if you come to him, he'll take care of the need. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be taken care of. We tend to focus on all the other things and not the kingdom and not his righteousness. He says, if you seek me first and my righteousness first, seek me, then I'll take care of all the needs in your life. Now notice what God's response is. He says, call unto me and I will answer you. Now the Hebrew word that's translated there, answer, is a fascinating word. It's the idea of keeping your eye on somebody. He says, call unto me, and I'm going to keep my eye on you. Those of you that are parents, have you ever taken your child to a playground and there's a bunch of other kids there? And you put your kids out there in the playground, but you sit back and what do you do? You keep your eye on your child. Anywhere your kid goes, you got your eye on your child above the rest of them. When my son was a little boy, preschooler, someone told us, it says, you can walk into a room filled with preschoolers and you'll pick out his voice among all the kids that are there. And I thought they were just blowing smoke. And I went to pick my son up at preschool one day, and I walked into a room, and there was 20-some kids, little kids running around that room. And I remember standing there in that room, and it didn't take me five seconds to discern Jonathan's voice in that room. That's the idea of the word that he uses there when he says, I'm going to answer you. God says, I can pick out your voice in the crowd. I got my eye on you. You see, what the Lord is saying here is, listen, you call upon me, I can hear you. You call upon me, and I will discern your voice. You call upon me, and I know who you are, because I've got my eye focused on you. He's waiting on us. 
Now, he says, I'm going to answer you. I'm going to give you a specific response to you calling on me. And God's response will often be different from what we had asked for or anticipated. So let me ask you to do this. Let me encourage you to do this. When you go and you call upon the Lord and you begin to to talk with Him in prayer, have a piece of paper or a notebook in front of you, or if you use an electronic device and you record things that way, have that in front of you. Because as God begins to move in your mind and your heart and the Lord begins to speak to you, write it down. Record it. I cannot emphasize that enough. Write it down and record it. And you say, why? Well, first of all, if the Lord is working in your life, you want to take it down. If God is helping you to discern what He's doing in your life, that's worth taking down. So journal what the Lord is showing you. Second, we all forget stuff, and so it's easy to forget. And finally, it's giving you some really major ideas and clues about what God's doing in your life and where He wants to take you, okay? You'll go back to that and revisit that and revisit that, and you will begin to see a pattern of how God is working in your life and a pattern of where He's taking you and a pattern of what He is developing inside of you and getting you ready for so when it begins to break forth in your life, you're saying, ah, that's what the Lord was teaching me in my prayer time. That's what God was speaking to me about. That's what the Lord was helping me to discern. Now he says, I'm going to answer you. And then notice the next part. He says, and I will tell you what is to come. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things. Now the word that's translated tell there means to make a matter high and to make it conspicuous. In other words, you will see it. And it speaks of that which was unknown previously, and now it is extremely conspicuous to be able to see. And it is the idea that when God says, I'm going to tell you this, it's the idea that I'm going to show you this by action. So God is saying here to Judah, listen folks, if you call upon me, I'm going to listen to you, recognize your voice, my eye is on you. And then I want you to understand, Judah, that as you call upon me, I am going to begin to act in you, among you, and around you in such a way that you are going to conspicuously see it's going to be right there in front of you. You can see it. You can discern it. Exactly what I'm doing and exactly what I am saying. In other words, God is saying, I am not going to play hide and go seek with me or my will. It's going to be right there in front of your face. Now, one of the big issues all of us struggle with is how do I know the will of God? Okay, how can I know the will of God? Well, God is saying here, I'm going to show you my will and I'm going to make it conspicuous. You can't miss it. I'm going to put it up high where you can look at it and you can see it. God does not hide his will or his desires from us. Now, as soon as I'm saying that, some of you are sitting there and saying, well, Pastor, that sounds great, but I don't have a clue as to what God's doing in my life and how God's doing it. I am totally clueless. All of us will have times when we are clueless about the will of God. We don't need to have a second where we are clueless about God. Let me see that again. 
All of us are going to have times when we are clueless about the will of God. We don't have to have a second where we are clueless about God. We got 66 books of explanation on who God is. We have the person and the ministry of Jesus to show us what God is like. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach us about what God is like. So the first thing is learn all you can learn and experience all you can experience of who God is. And then He will begin to show you where He wants to take you, how He wants to use you, etc. My experience has been that if I give God time and place to teach me who He is, He takes about five seconds to show me where He wants me and what He wants me doing. Because the big issue is Him, not the will. It's knowing Him and loving Him. Now, He says, I'm going to show you some great stuff. The word there means excellent or quality. Now, notice what it says here. I'm going to show you great Quality, excellent things that are hidden. The word hidden there spoke of that which was inaccessible. You couldn't get to it. And it particularly had the idea of a fortification. In other words, it's like you have a fort around something. And you can't get to it because of the fort. Now in those days, they built walls around cities. And the cities fortified everybody that was on the inside. So the only way you could get into a city was through the city gates because the walls were so big and massive that they kept everybody safe on the inside. And that's the idea of the word he's using here. In other words, you can't get into the things of God unless you go through the gate. And the wall that's around the things of God make it inaccessible. You can't penetrate into the things of God. Now, he's talking about here, he says, I'm going to show you the hidden things. I'm going to let you right into where everything that has been fortified and inaccessible you can get into. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? The Bible says that when he sat on Calvary's hill on one end of Jerusalem, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he uttered the words in complete darkness, it is finished, hung his head and died. On the hill of Calvary, Jesus is saying, it is finished. When his head fell in death, in the center of Jerusalem, in the temple, the veil in that moment was ripped from the top to the bottom. God ripped the veil so that you could walk into and you could look into the Holy of Holies, where the very presence of God was said to dwell. What was God saying? God was saying that which was fortified and inaccessible is now accessible. Can you imagine what the priest must have felt like as he was in the holy place doing his work, knowing that only the great high priest could go into the holy of holies on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And if he walked in there and if he sinned, then he would be killed immediately and pulled back out of there by a rope that was attached to his ankle. And that priest is in there minding his business, doing his thing. But in that priest's mind, he must have thought, what must it be like to be in the Holy of Holies? What must the presence of God be like? Man, I would love to be in there. And all of a sudden, he's standing there and he hears a rip. And he gets louder and he gets bolder. And he looks up and he sees that great big thirst 
curtain being ripped from the top to the bottom. And all of a sudden, he is looking into the thing that he had never been able to look into before. God was saying, my presence is now accessible. It's not hidden anymore. You can come in through Jesus. Now, he says, you haven't known this, Judah. Why haven't you not known this? You haven't known it for two reasons. You were so enamored with sin that you didn't realize what you were missing. You were so caught up in the sin and disobedience. You were so caught up in your fear and your messes that you didn't realize what you were missing. Oh, so many times we miss out on what God has for us because we don't realize how good it is. We don't realize what we are missing. Second, Judah had settled for words instead of experience. What I mean by that is this. They would talk about the glory of God, but they never experienced the glory of God. They talked about the holiness of God, but they never knew what it was to be in the presence of God. Of the holiness of God. You see it's a trap. It's so easy to fall into. We can have all the right vocabulary. And miss the experience. We can talk about God's love. But never know what it is to really be embraced by him. We can talk about the holiness of God. But never know what it is. To stand in his holy pure presence. And let him purify us. We can talk about His glory, but never really know what it is to see the glory of God in us and around us. And God was saying to them, listen Judah, it's time to get off of the right vocabulary and get into the experience of who I am. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. The walls came down when Jesus rose from the dead. I want you to listen to the fulfillment of what he's saying here in Jeremiah 33.3. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, day of the resurrection. This is of his disciples. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened. And thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands. And his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Now, notice what Jesus does here as he's tearing down the inaccessibility to him. I love what he does. Jesus stands there in front of him. He says, guys, I'm resurrected. Do you see my hands where the nail prints were? 
Do you see my feet where the nails went in? Guys, I want you to step up to me. Get real close. And I want you to take your finger. And I want you to put your finger right here into my hand. I want you to take your finger and put it into my feet. Because I don't want you just to see resurrection power. I want you to touch resurrection power. And you see, when you look at me, you see scars. But you also see skin and flesh that isn't white with death. It's pink with life. In fact, if you touch it, you'll start feeling the blood that's pulsating through a hand that is alive. You're not going to touch a cold hand and cold feet. You will touch warm feet. Body temperature feet and hands. I want you to experience the resurrection. And I know you're having a hard time with it, so while you're sitting over there chewing on this, I'm going to eat some fish and I'm going to chew in front of you. Because while you watch me eat fish and chew fish and you watch my throat swallow fish, ghosts don't eat. They don't swallow. In spite of Ghostbusters, they don't eat and they don't swallow. So as you watch me eat and you watch me swallow here, you're going to know that I am alive. Because I want you to experience resurrection. Why do I want you to experience resurrection? Because I want you to know my peace and I want you to know my hope. And then notice what he says as he goes on from that. Verse 36 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. He says in verse 45 as he looks at them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold I am sending the promise of my Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus says I want you to experience the resurrection. I want you to experience the reality of it, the power of it. But then in verse 45, it says that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He says, the next thing I want you to experience, the next wall that's going to come down, is everything in the Bible up to that point seems strange to you and you can't understand it. He says, I'm going to open your mind to it. I'm going to teach it to you. And you see, folks, when, the, when Jesus begins to knock down the walls in our lives, this hope that he gives us is that he begins to teach us the Word of God. He opens our minds to what this book teaches and what this book has to say. And then notice verse 49. He says, I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. That, of course, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about something. Everybody in here has got clothes on. At least I'm trusting that you've got clothes on. And you're going to keep your clothes on. All right, several things about your clothes. When we look at you, what do we see? We see your clothes. Some of you put some effort this morning to what you put on because you wanted people to see what your clothes were. All right? 
People see us for who we are when we got our clothes on. They're not looking at our naked bodies. They're looking at our clothes. When he says, I'm going to clothe you with power, what is he saying? He says, when people look at you, they're not going to see your weaknesses. They're not going to see your inadequacies. They're not going to see all your mess-ups and your sins. When I get through with you, what they're going to see when they look at you is the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. I'm going to clothe you with power. The second thing clothes do is they protect us. It was cold this morning when we got up and we got to church. So what do we do? We put on more clothes to protect us from the cold. Why do we do that? Because what's on the outside, the cold, cannot penetrate into the body to do harm to the body. So that's why we are clothed in clothes this morning to keep our bodies protected. When he says he's going to clothe with you with power, he is saying that what's on the inside of you, when the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't have to be impacted by what's on the outside of you. What's on the outside of you doesn't have to penetrate and harm you when you are clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin does not have to take a toll on us when we are clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. The attacks of the enemy do not have to take us out and take us down when we are clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. When other people say trashing us doesn't have to pull us down when we are clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. A culture that doesn't want to hear about Jesus anymore doesn't need to dictate to us whether we talk about Jesus when we are clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all the junk that is surrounding us doesn't need to change us and mold us and the sin that is so prevalent when we are clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus saying again to his disciples, I'm going to clothe you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to talk about who I am, what I'm doing. And notice where he says you're going to do that. You're going to start out in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Samaria. Then you're going to go farther out. And then you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. What was Jesus trying to say to him? He was trying to say the power of God through the Spirit is going to be just as relevant in Rome as it is in Jerusalem. It's going to be just as relevant as you begin to go into the continent of Africa as it was here in Jerusalem. It's going to be just as powerful as you go north into Europe as it was here in Jerusalem. You see, one of the problems the disciples had early on is they got into this power of the Holy Spirit. The problem was they thought it was just good for Jerusalem. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. It's just as relevant and just as powerful anywhere you go. And in fact, I'm going to force you out of Jerusalem so that you will find out that it's just as relevant anywhere. And folks, our tendency sometimes is with God that we say, Lord, I can know the power of God in church, but I can't know it at school on Monday morning. Oh, it's great to talk about Jesus here in this room, but how when I get into some other room in my life where there's opposition at home, at the job, wherever, and He's saying His power will clothe you no matter whether you're in the church house, the school house, or any other house. His power is just as relevant. And the final thing he's saying to us is, don't think that my power is just good in Rocky Mount or in Virginia or in the United States because my power is just as relevant any other geographic. 
place on this earth as it is here. But the biggest mistake we so often make in the church is not geographic, it is historical. We think the power of God was great back in the 50s, but God can't pull it off today like He did 50 years ago. God can't pull it off now like He did in the 80s. God can't pull it off now like He did 70, I mean, seven years ago. God can't pull it off now in our lives like He did even a few weeks ago. I mean, we try to come. Confine the Lord to all kinds of little errors. And what Jesus is saying here is, I can do a work in 2019 as sure as I did it in 1919, 1979, or 1999. It doesn't matter to me. The power of the Holy Spirit is just as relevant today as it was in any era. And I can work in your life as a senior adult as much as I did when you were a kid, if you'll let me. I can do a work in your life as a teenager as much as I did as a child. I can do a work in your life today as much as I did last week, if you will allow me to do it. If you will call upon me, I will encounter you. And I will show you things that you would know not. Let's pray. Lord, make us hungry make us thirsty, and yes, even make us desperate for you and for what you want to do in us and among us. Jesus, you're standing there in our lives, and you're saying, I want to encounter you. I want to clothe you in my power. I want to do a work inside of you and around you and through you, and I just want you to know me. And every day, Lord, For us to to know you more and deeper. And Jesus to, to love you more. Lord, we want to call out upon you. And we know you said you got your eye on us. And you will answer us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you're here today and you need to give your life to this Jesus we've talked about. He is here. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And as we sing, I want to invite you to walk the aisle here. I would love to pray with you about coming to know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, coming to have that relationship with Him in your life. If you're here and you say, I made that decision, then the next step for you is what we call believer's baptism. Or you say, Lord, I want to identify with you. And he gave us the means of baptism as a powerful, visible way of saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. He has washed my sins away. He's placed me into a relationship with him. And I want to follow his example. I want to identify with him. And so I encourage you to come forward. We would love to receive you. And to become part of of his body, the church, to serve him and love him here with us, this place. If there's any other public decision you need to make, I encourage you to step out in obedience to the Lord. Father, have your way with us in these moments, we pray. And Lord, as we sing and as we pray, may we be saying to you, Jesus, I want a fresh encounter with you. In your name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, come if you will.